But isn't it interesting, as you're going to talk with me today and listen today, what our Lord has to say, isn't it interesting how God has a, a plan for all of us? And there is a, there is a, a greatness about our God. And, and I think, as we're going to try to, I'm going to try to teach today, but actually uh, the writer of the book of Acts is going to teach us what it means to really walk with him. If I can leave anything with you, and this being my next to the last, next week we'll finish it all up, and I'll be on my way. Wow. Um, what I'd like to leave with you is this message. Um, I want you to know with all of your hearts that you are God's chosen instrument. That if you have come to Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not by accident. God has a definite plan for you. I don't know what it is. And I'm not certain that you might even know what it is. I'm not sure what God has for me as we go to Oregon, but I'm watching Him open doors. It's like, it's crazy to me. It's, it's, it's hard to explain to me how He does what He does in my life. It's never varied. Since the moment I came to trust in Him, there's always been something that I can say honestly, that's God. I couldn't have done that. It's all Him. I could tell you story after story. I could, I could tell you the first day I, I go to, to, when I went to Vero Beach, uh, when, when I became saved, and Kay and I went to a conference, and, and we, we started in ministry, and we we're going to be in ministry with athletes, the Dodgers specifically, and the Angels. And I, and I flew to Vero Beach, Florida, and, and if, if you only knew, I, I had no plan. I had no place to stay. I had no car. I'd, land in, I, I'd gone with the Dodgers to Vero before, but I always landed in Vero with the Dodgers plane, and then a bus would take us to the complex. And I'm going there, and I'm realizing, we're going to land in Orlando. I have no idea. How am I going to get from Orlando, Orlando to Vero? Hmm. Huh. And there in the, in the plane, I, I see a sports writer that I knew from the L.A. Times. I said, John, what are you going to be doing? He says, I'm, I'm going back to Vero and talk to the guys about having chapel. He says, how are you going to get to Vero? I said, I don't know. He says, well, i got a car. You want me to, let's drive with me. I said, great. Got there and uh, got a place to stay and walked on the, on the grounds the next day, the spring training. And the first person, honestly, one of the first persons I saw was Mr. Walter O'Malley, the owner of the Dodgers. And he said to me, what are you doing here? <laughs> like, get out of here. We got rid of you. We already traded you. Get out of here. So what are you doing here, John? I said, well, I'd, sir, I'd like to start a chapel service with the team. Like, guys don't get an opportunity to go to church. I'd like to be, give them an opportunity. He said, that's fine with me, owner of the Dodgers. He says, uh, why don't you go tell Walt, Walt Alston, the manager, why don't you go tell Walt that it's fine with me that you uh, do this? So I go to the I go to the the the, the place where we changed. I've already now I've forgotten the names of everything. Uh, clubhouse, something I don't know. We I go where they are in the barracks there before they get dressed and go out in the field and and I walk in and I see Walt Alston and I uh, sat baseball with the Dodgers under Walt Alston and and he said, John, what are you doing here? And I told him, and he said, I told him what Mr. O'Malley said, and he says, well, it's, I won't probably attend, he said, but if, if the guys want it, it's okay with me. He says, I'm going to have a meeting with the team. He says, why don't you take a couple of minutes and explain to them and see if um, they want to do this. Now, now, I challenge anybody, almost anybody in the United States of America to go and, and, and walk into the clubhouse 
and get a, a, a meeting with the team before the manager. You couldn't do it. You couldn't have got in the. You couldn't have got on the grounds. But God had me this way paved for me. And so a couple of the guys raised their hand and from there started chapel with the Dodgers, went home, started chapel with the Angels and then with the Rams and then the Raiders and on and on it went until we became a pastor of a church. I better get into this because we've got to have communion. But I want to tell you this thought. You are a chosen instrument of God. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9? I'm going to go long again to this time. Darn it. I'm trying to get every punch in I can before I leave. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to miss you guys very much. Very, very much. Um, uh, I want you to read this scenario that happens to Paul when he was known as Saul, when he persecuted the church. And I want you to note that there are two men mentioned in here. One is Saul, which we will call Paul, and the other is Ananias who is called here in Acts chapter 9 just a certain disciple. Nobody special. Maybe just like you and me. Someone who's just willing to be used by God. And I want you to see what takes place. Watch. Let's read. I'm going to read to about verse 20. And I'm going to read it slowly so you can kind of just take it in. Verse 1 of chapter 9 of the book of Acts says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found belonging to the way, the way being Christians, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It came about that as he journeyed there, he, was appro- he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and it shall be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground and threw his eyes, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. You might want to hold on to that thought. Verse 10 tells us there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For behold, you might want to hold this, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered and said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. Verse 15 is really a great verse. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer 
for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the home. And after laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 tells us immediately there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales and he, remained, he regained his sight and he arose and was baptized and he took food and he was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Note here in verse 20, immediately, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. It's a very interesting scenario that takes place there between two very distinctive people. One of them, Saul, who later becomes Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. He was in the midst of his being persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. He was still called an instrument of God. And so are you, a chosen instrument of God And God wants to use you and He wants to use me wherever He may take us. What does that mean in your life and my life? Let's pray and let's let's get into this. Please, Father, would You bless us? Would You please open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things that come from Your Word, the law of God. And would You move me aside so that I do not interfere with what You want to say to every single person here. There's, There's someone here, Father, that doesn't feel like... He, he or she can be used by you and I want, to, I want you to stop that thought process immediately and let them know that they too are a chosen instrument of yours if they know you as their Lord and Savior. And so I pray that you'll bless us. Father, kindness uh, of that you give to us is beyond measure. Thank you so much, Father, for this time. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You might say... <clears throat> I understand what you just read, John. I get it. But but I'm no chosen instrument of God. I mean, you might be thinking, if you knew my past, you'd know there's no hope for me. But but on the contrary, Paul called himself in 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15, the chief among sinners. Of all the sinners on this earth, Paul considered himself to be the chief. And so you might say, you... I don't know though, John. I want to tell you this. If, if you knew my past, if you knew who I was before Christ, there would be more than likely you would not have come to this church. And don't look at me so smug. If I knew you, I probably wouldn't have come here to this church either. <laughs> no, it's, we are all sinners saved by the grace of God the Almighty. And He wants to use us. And hopefully He will. Hopefully you'll be able to allow God to speak to you through this, this certain place in Scripture. We talked about Saul in verses 1 to 9. You can see that he caused havoc within the church. He even killed believers in Jesus Christ. He was a despicable man. And yet God wishes to use him in spite of that, even calling Saul a chosen instrument of his. Let's see where we find Saul after he is knocked off of his donkey. He's there on the road and he hears the Lord, but he can't see a thing. They take him into the city of Damascus. 
and they take him to a place on a street called Straight. And we find Paul in verse 9 fasting. It says in verse 9, he neither ate nor drank for three days without sight. He is fasting. And if you look at verse 11, the Lord said to Ananias, go, because at the end of verse 11, he says he is praying. So what we see of Paul immediately, he's fasting and praying because whatever happened to him on that road going into Damascus has never happened to him before. And he's beside himself wondering what took place. And I wonder if any of you reading this or thinking about it for any length of time have ever wondered what was Paul fasting and praying about. And I think we know. I think we can go to another place in Scripture and see what Paul considers himself at that moment in time. I want you to turn with me to the right to the book of uh, Philippians. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. You're going to go past Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then uh, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. And more than likely, you and I are going to see what Paul is thinking. In Philippians chapter 3, I want you to read with me verses 3 to 8. Watch. He says, Paul... We are the true circumcision. In other words, we're the true believers who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our flesh. Here's what Paul was thinking. If anyone, I'm going to read it to you in a moment, if anyone had a reason to be, to be confident in who he was in the flesh, it would have been him. Look what he says in verse 4, although I myself, this is the closest you'll ever hear Paul pray, bragging about himself. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In other words, whatever you consider that you got going for you, that you're okay before God, I want you to know that I'm, I have, I'm far better than you in my flesh. Here's his pedigree. Here's who he is. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 5. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I was born to the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I am a Pharisee, he is saying. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is of the law, I am found to be blameless. He could take all the credit he wanted in his flesh. And here he is, stay here in Philippians chapter 3, here he is in Damascus, can't see anything, He's fasting and praying, he's probably weighing all of this stuff that he used to have, who he thought he was, and now he realizes he has nothing. How do I know that? Look what he says. Look at verse uh, verse 7. For whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That statement. I count all things that I have had, all things that I considered strength in my flesh to be loss. In fact, he says, I considered them rubbish so that I might gain Christ. How are you on that line of thinking? How important is Jesus Christ to you? Do you consider everything in this world to be loss for the privilege of gaining Christ as your Lord? Look what he says in verse 9. That I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's where he was saying, considering the faith, I mean flesh, I'm, I'm blameless. I'm, I'm okay as far as the flesh is concerned. But he says, but that, verse 9, middle of it, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is understanding that he has been completely and utterly forgiven for everything that he had ever done against the Lord. Remember what Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? I want to ask you a question. Who did Paul persecute? Believers, right? He never laid a hand on Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ took it very personally and said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the believers, why are you persecuting me? I want you to know when something bad happens to you, Jesus Christ takes it very, very personally. Saul asked him, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting? And Jesus told him clearly, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. And so, Paul says in verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3, that I might know Him. I want to know the power of His resurrection, he says in verse 10. I want to know the fellowship of His suffering, he says in verse 10. I want to be conformed into His death, he says in verse 10, in order, verse 11, that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And here's... Here's the heart of Paul. Here's the humility of Paul. He says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect. No, he says, I press on. I encourage you to do the same. I encourage me to continue pressing on on this understanding and and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is in our lives so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13, I got it starred. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. That is a verse for me and it is a verse for you. Forget what lies behind. Press on to that high call of Jesus Christ. Look, that's what he says in verse 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows now for sure that his past sins are forgiven. And he's there on the street in a, a called Straight in Damascus. And he is fasting and he is praying, wondering what is going to happen to his life. I, I'm, I'm certain that's what, what he's thinking. I want you to come back with me now to Acts chapter 9. My friend, if you want to know what true Christianity is, if you want to understand what is a true believer in Jesus Christ, get to know Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. Get to know those verses. The loss of all things and count the things that you thought are benefit to you as rubbish 
in the wonderful fact that you might and I might, we might gain Jesus Christ. A true peace that comes from knowing who your Savior is and that your sins are forgiven. I believe it is here that Paul realizes that he has nothing else but Jesus Christ on this street called the Strait in Damascus. I wonder if you've come to that place yet where you count all things that as, as rubbish so that you might gain Christ. That's what I pray for you as a body of believers. When I'm gone, if I'm going to be praying for you, and I will without ceasing, I'm going to be praying that you might feel strength in who you are in Christ. I'm here today to leave you with this message. You are a chosen instrument of God and God wishes to use you for His glory in some way, in some fashion. How that is, I don't know. What's going to happen to me up there in Oregon, I don't know. I'll be back. I'll report to you from time to time what's going on. But I have no idea what's going to happen in the, the days and weeks and months and hopefully years ahead of me. I do know one thing. I'm willing to be used by God. Let's take a look at these two people that were used by God. Ananias, verse 10, just called a certain disciple. Nobody special. And Paul, Saul, who's going to do great things for the Lord. And the Lord is also, in verse 16, going to allow him to see how much he's going to suffer for the Lord's sake. The question you ought to ask is this. Which one of these two men are more important to God? You really need to ask that question. Because it will set you free in what you might want to be doing in ministry. I am here to tell you that both of them are important. And God uses them both for His glory. You see, God does not judge you and me like we do maybe our own self or others. He doesn't consider somebody more important than another person because of what they do or don't do. How do I know that? Listen, listen to these words. It's in, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and a, and a seldom read verse with that, verse 10. Verses 8 and 9 says, By grace you and I have been saved through faith, and that not of ourself. It is a gift of God. Your salvation is a gift that God has given you. And it is not a result of works. In other words, you, it's nothing that you have done so nice that, that God says, oh, I'll take that person because they're so nice. No, it's a gift that God gives you. And the reason it isn't because what you and I do is a result of being our works, it's because that He doesn't want us to boast. There's nothing about me that is, or you for that matter, that is, is boastable in heaven. It's what God has done in our lives. And here's how I know that. Verse 10, that is seldom read. Verse 10 says that you and I are His workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Catch this now. Here's the key. That God has prepared beforehand so that you and I just would walk in it. Don't you know that Kay and I just looked at one another in awe when we when we realized that three different people came to us and asked us about God, and, and we made no attempt to reach out to them. God did it. I could take no credit for any of that. If you think I'm here and that I would take credit for this church, you, you don't know me. I believe with all my heart that in the first place God has prepared a ministry for me, all He wants me to do is walk in what He has already done beforehand. 
It's not been one week, not one moment in my life that I believe I did any of this here at this church or anywhere that I've ever been. All I believe is what I did that is of some credit to me is that I am obedient to the Lord. And in that process of obedience, He is the one who does it all and I watch Him do His work. It's, 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 it's astonishing to watch Him. For instance, the kitchen, those that do the food, you think I had anything to do with that? Nothing. Zero. Zip. Nothing. Those who greet people at the door, those who are teaching upstairs, and by the way, Steve's classroom in, in classroom 210 is packed full of people. God bless that. that our Lord doing that. Or the music we have here, or the tech team, or, or, or whatever anything does, I have no part in that. That is just people being obedient, serving the Lord. And which one's more important? We're all equal in this. If you are obedient to what God has called you to do, then the importance of the, of the ministry, the size of the ministry, the scope of the ministry, the task of the ministry is not the issue. Because He is, God is the one who has already prepared for you what you are called to do. All He asks of you is the same thing He asks of Paul, same thing He asks of Ananias, same thing He asks of me. Just be obedient and walk in it. He gifts Paul to do what Paul did. He gifts Ananias to do what Ananias did. Each of them had a purpose. Each of them, get this now, became equally important to God, not by what they did, but how, how they did it through the obedience of following after God. That's all He asks of you and me. That's all He wants of us. If you can get that principle of faith and works and understand that it is He that has already done it for you, he just asks you to obediently walk in it, then you will have a leg up on most Christians in the world. Listen, it's not what you do. It's how you do it. Serving the Lord, if you want to do it for credit or recognition, go ahead. But the Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains, or a woman, if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Well, you give in exchange for your soul. I don't care if it's a cathedral that is filled with millions of people. If the pastor of that church is not doing it for the sake of Christ and allowing Christ to do what Christ wants to do through him, then it is of no value. The numbers of people are not the issue. The issue is yours and my obedience. It's Isaiah who tells us in Isaiah 64, 6. Dave, you want to come on up and we'll do communion. I'm pretty good on time this time. I really blew it for service. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6 that without the Lord's righteousness, the things that you and I do is nothing but a bunch of filthy garments. It's of no value. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm saying to me, we are chosen instruments of God. God wants to use you. He wants to use you mightily. Now, mightily might not be something grandiose. It might be just as the Scriptures teach in giving somebody a cold cup of water. We're going to have communion now with Dave, and next week we're going to close with this, this great book, Book Acts, Chapter 9. I want to talk more about Paul, and I want to challenge you. 
And I want you to see the, the beauty of serving the Lord. And take away the fear that you don't feel like you're qualified enough to do it. Of course you're not. Of course you're not. He is. He's already prepared it for you. Just be obedient. 